Visionaries are people who exist on the border of imagination and reality. Sometimes they're able to see into the future, or even other worlds. They also tend to be pretty fascinating characters. In this episode, we're talking about two of history's most remarkable visionaries. Welcome to Shadowland, everybody. Welcome. This is a podcast that shines a spotlight on stories of the supernatural, mysterious, eerie, and unexplained, like ghost ships, portals, elves, Atlantis, ESP, weird science buildings, (laughs) poltergeists, underground bases, synchronicity, interdimensional beings, wendigos, shaman, stargates, ghost trains, all of that stuff. And more. And lots more. Cool. And today we're talking about um, some different stuff. I mean, I guess it's still within the, um, the the realm of Shadowland that we've done. I guess we started with sort of synchronicity and young. But um, today we're talking about some kind of, I guess, visionaries. But they're kind of different characters, but there's some similarities between them, right. I guess. And, and, yeah. and, and it kind of like bridges sort of that gap between spiritual and the scientific in certain ways. Right. Both of these guys started out as scientists. One definitely went in a more uh, uh, religious, uh, um, uh, down a more religious road, and the other definitely stayed in the sort of um, scientific world, but definitely like mind-blowing science that we're still, I think, really still trying to understand some of some of his stuff. So. Absolutely, yeah. There's there's still stuff that supposedly is hidden away and is going to be unearthed. And usually, we don't tell each other what we're doing, but this time we did, yes. um, just to make sure we didn't double up on it because it's yes. it's a lot of research. Um. So cool. So, um, do you want to go first? You want me to go first? I think. What? I went first last time, so why don't you go first? Okay. Um, so the person I'm doing, and I'm doing a particular work of his, um, but the person I'm doing is Emanuel Swedenborg. Um, and I'm going to be focusing on a, on a particular work that he did. It's kind of obscure, but um, it's called um, Life on Other Planets, or originally I think it was called Worlds in Space. Um, and so for those who don't know, uh, Emanuel Swedenborg was a 17th century Swedish uh, scientist, philosopher, uh, Christian thinker, and mystic. Um, He was born in 1688, uh, died in um, 1772 at age 84. Um, He was definitely best known for his writings on um, Christianity. I think one in particular, a book about the afterlife called uh, Heaven and Hell. But um, until the age of... 53, uh, however, he was actually a prolific scientist, uh, inventor, and a science book writer. I think he wrote like quite a few, dozens at least. I think something like 15 or 30 (laughs) different science books by the time he was like in his 30s. So he was was pretty... I feel like a loser. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, some. they did a whole. Yeah, they were on a whole different schedule back then. But, um, but yeah, he was definitely a prolific uh, person. He he was uh, you know loved the sciences and 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 he actually um, he undertook uh, many different studies of anatomy and physiology, um, and he actually had the first known anticipation of the neuron concept. So um, it wasn't not until like a century later that science actually um, recognized the full significance of the nerve cell. So he was actually sort of conceiving of these particular parts of the, um, of the nervous system. Um, he also had prescient ideas of the cerebral cortex, the nervous system, a bunch of other stuff I didn't quite really understand. But, uh, <laughs> but he definitely like was, he was definitely a leading scientific mind and never really lost that edge. Um, and in some cases, his conclusions have actually been verified in modern times um but uh at the wow age- that's that's really interesting and it's kind of unusual i mean how how far back with this is 17 what? yeah yeah 17th century so he's okay. born in late 1600s mm-hmm. um and i think a lot of his work scientific work was sort of around the turn of the century um but yeah like he definitely he definitely like was one of those scientists that was um you know able to conceive ideas right so he he approach science from that point of view. Um, 
And so then um, at age 53, um, he had a profound religious experience, which changed the course of his life and his writings for the next 28 years. So I think he was always actually kind of a religious person. He's obviously a highly intelligent person. Wow. Um, Are you going to tell us about it? Well, yeah, that's the whole thing. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I mean, so... I knew what you were doing, but I didn't know where you were going with him. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so according to him, I'm not, I don't know the exact experience he had for the first time, but, um, around that time, according to him, uh, he began being visited by angels, uh, and spirits from other worlds. Um, he said at that time, by the grace of God, his, what he would often call his, um, interior faculties, um, had been opened up. And so he was able to, um, um, you know, meet and converse, uh, with spirits and travel in the spirit world. So even though he was sort of still on earth and be able to sort of lead a, a uh, sensual life, um, he had this entire other life that would happen in the evenings when he, you know, when he would be um, visited by this sort of myriad of, of uh, what he would describe as angels and spirits. And um, this lasted for, I think, nightly for like 20, over 20 years. Wow. So was he having out-of-body experiences? Was it astral projection or while he was sleeping? Yeah. So the way he um, describes it is, is, is actually fairly specific. Um, he would describe it as uh, having, he said, basically every place in the universe had a corresponding state of mind to it. And so the way he would travel was he would say these angels would um, change his state of mind. And so it wouldn't be, it wasn't instantaneous travel where all of a sudden he was just somewhere else. He said they would sort of continually change his state of mind as if he were moving then through the universe. And so he would travel to, he traveled around the solar system, which I will, I'll get to, and, and also around the, um, around outside of the galaxy, um, in the rest of the galaxy as well. Um, and he would, you know, say it would take varying time periods, uh, but he would, you know, experience crossing outside of the solar system. He would, um, you know, he said, it, I think some of his travels took days even. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was gone for, um, and I think some of this might come up with your guy, but he would be gone for long periods of time and then, you know, come back and no time would have passed um, here on earth. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, so a lot of that, a lot of what he um, ended up writing about came from, um, these sort of nightly conversations he would have with these entities, if you will, that would visit him. Um, and I think he wrote quite a bit um, based off of those, a lot of sci- uh, um, Christian uh, commentaries based off those conversations. And I think some of them, I don't think he really talked about where they came from until towards the end of his life. Um, I think he was either said he wasn't supposed to, or, or just probably knew it wasn't a good idea, you know? Um, although yeah. I think at the time of his death, he, it was sort of, he had discussed it to some degree or, or published some works describing it, but, um, he's definitely had a huge influence, um, uh, you know, since his death, um, over the years, his, his ideas have actually, uh, influenced many writers and philosophers, um, just to name a, f- a few, uh, including, uh, Johnny Appleseed was a big Swedenborgian, Right. So his really. Yeah. So his whole mission was, you know, he he definitely I don't think it was as sort of cartoonish as him, like running around with, you know, pot on his head, you know, (laughs) any apple seeds. But he did cultivate um, orchards and just give them to people. He was kind of this um, I think John Muir was very influenced by by him, but he was this sort of lover of the land. And he was a, you know, um, he was very Christian, but also, but in the vein of Swedenborg, like he had no possessions and he would just travel around um, uh, preaching and um, growing apple trees and stuff. And so, yeah, Johnny Appleseed was a big uh, Swedenborgian. Um, um, Yates, uh, Frost, Blake, Emerson, Young, he's another Shadowland favorite. Um, And even uh, D.T. Suzuki. Um, you know, some pretty big sort of thinkers of of the sort of modern and, and sort poets, of spiritual world yeah. and poets. Yeah. So he's definitely had his influence. And, and I think, you know, um, even after his death, um, some of his followers actually established the church of Swedenborg, which I think is still, it's still a thing. Um, what are the tenets of, um, well, I don't, I don't really know the tenets. I'm not sure if 
that there are any tenants, but I, mm-hmm. but his approach, I have read some of his writings and his approach is sort of to come from the point of view of the inner teaching of Christianity and, and the, the way of, um, of taking everything inwardly. Right. And mm-hmm. so, you know, he would talk about like, you know, like a commandment, like that shot, not kill. And, you know, he would say, actually, you know, we kill all the time in our heart, <laughs> you know? Right. And so oh, he would sort of focused more on our sort of inner life. Um, he was a very inner life driven person, much like young. Um, and so, yeah, that's that, that was kind of his perspective from the limited amount. He's actually written quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. and a lot of it's very dense. And so, um, I've only, only read a little bit and including the work I'm going to talk about, but, um, yeah, so um, during those um, nightly visits, uh, he later, you know, said that he was actually taken around um, the solar system and farther out uh, into the galaxy by these angels. And so, he, um, you know, I described he, you know, he had this very particular way. He said he would travel there. Um, and so, yeah, and I'm oh, sorry, I'm just jumping yeah, in real quickly, just because I, I think it's really fascinating. But it almost sounds like he was driven sort of like by his will, like he would sort of um, you know, desire or, you know, well, to be someplace and he would start traveling there? Well, no, he, he would, he would say pretty, um, you know, he was a very religious person. So he very mm-hmm. rarely sort of placed anything that he did as self-initiated and, and, mm-hmm. and pretty much his writings, he would say, look, I'm just writing down these conversations. Like, and so he would say that the, these beings that would come to him would, were the ones who would change his mind. He said his plits, his trips were planned ahead of time and they were very sort of complicated, but it was largely out of his hands. He was essentially carried to these places, but he said it was done by them changing his state of mind. Okay. But, but his mind was involved. His mind the was reason, definitely involved. Yeah. The reason yeah. why I picked up on it is because like from a lot of, I'm, you know, I'm like a near death experience geek. Yes. But from a lot of these accounts you read, people talk about, um, it's almost like their will or they'll think of being in a place and it, yeah, and it it's feels like they've kind of willed themselves to like move around yes. in the afterlife. Yes. There's definitely that quality to, mm-hmm. to how he describes it. Um, and, you know, much of what he writes about is actually the afterlife. You know, like I said, he wrote that one work, but, um, but basically um, all of his travels, um, all the spirits that he met um, was, uh, were, um, you know, the spirits of a particular world as opposed to literally visiting that world. And so very often in some of the cases, he never even saw the planet. He would basically travel to where the spirits would sort of congregate around the, the sort of vicinity of of the planet. So he was most of the time in the spirit world and then was occasionally given glimpses into um, these corresponding worlds. And so a lot of what he wrote about was um, there is a definitely, um, you know, an afterlife quality to it all. It's most of his discussions were with these spirits were about the afterlife and their relationship to God and, and, you know, how they saw, um, you know, faith and all these, you know, very, uh, specifically religious topics. Um, but he also talked about how basically the, the universe was sort of populated by these spirits and they all came from, um, you know, what he would describe as human beings that lived on other planets and that, the spirits sort of populated the universe and created what he called the grand man. And so he said all the, all these different little localities of spirits would correspond to some place in this grand man, right? Like, you know, like he got really specific, like anatomy wise. And like, some of it seems, you know, it's like, Oh, you know, like in the chest or like in the the kneecap or whatever. Right. I'm making those up, but it was stuff like (laughs) that, but um, far out stuff. But, but basically, you know, it was, it was, people have definitely likened a lot of his descriptions to um, experiences. Like you said um, that, that people have had um, in near death experiences in the afterlife or wherever they went after they died. But, um, yeah, he said many of them, um, communicated through, uh, various forms of speech. Um, some of them, he, I think he described the ones from Mercury as not really liking to talk about m- the material world. Like where if he tried to describe anything from earth, they were not interested and they would like run away from him. But, um, and they would have different <laughs> forms of, of speaking, you know, um, not just sort of, you know, all the way from telepathy, but different types of vocalizations and, communicating through facial expressions. 
so he said all these um, spirits appear the way that they would, um, you know, sort of in life. And um, a lot of them, uh, you know, when they were talking would present what they thought on their face. And a lot of, you know, he, one of the um, ideas that he sort of came, kept coming back to was that a lot of these um, spirits didn't understand the idea of thinking one thing and saying another. That was sort of a strange idea over and over again that, you know, Swedenborg had come from this planet that, you know, where people, you know, didn't mean what they said, lied, basically. And then in some cases, it was not even possible for for them to do that. Um, So, yeah, so as he, you know, traveled around, you know, he he did try to talk about um, his world to people. um, And then he was sometimes described or he he actually said pictured, um, uh, you know, what life was like on their planet, right? It was sort of pictured to them. So he'd sort of see this sort of window into what their world was like. Um, in, in the worlds that were sort of outside the solar system and the rest of the galaxy, very often they were, he described these like sort of bucolic surroundings, right? People living in family units, farming and shepherding, you know, on, uh, um, living in these sort of, um, you know, very sort of, um, basic, uh, um, familial type of societies, you know, working the land, uh, you know, raising cattle or sheep or something. So kind of like continuing life on earth, only it's more of like a, an idealized form of like an Eden type scenario. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I I didn't, you know, that uh, obviously makes sense, but I, I, he never usually really used those words, but he did talk about how a lot of them were vegetarians and like sort of aboard the idea of, of eating, of eating animals and all this stuff. Um, he described some, so I would almost say like, um, almost a more like, you know, some of them he would um, describe as wearing like European sort of medieval type clothing, right? You know, and like, I think some of them, it was like a... Uh, well, they were know, keeping up with the times. Right? Yes. Well, I think he's maybe, it was almost more like a less advanced in a way, in, in a technology uh, technological point of view. It was like sort of less advanced societies, but more advanced in terms of their... Um, relationships with each other and their relationships to the spirit world and and so on. So, you know, some of these other planets, he said, had more people or it was a more regular occurrence for people to have their interiors opened where they could actually communicate with spirits from the outside world, from, from, you know, from their world. Um, So, yeah, um, you know, he showed, um, so on one of the farther out planets, he actually showed them uh, mental pictures of our cathedrals, right? Um, which when he would sort of picture them to them, it would actually show these like three dimensional as if they were real um, uh, so, sort of, you know, representations of, um, I'm not sure what cathedrals he, he, he never really specified, but um, he said the ones that he showed it to weren't very impressed um, because they were made out of stone. And then they showed them, he showed, they showed Swedenborg how they built their um, cathedrals and basically, they um, they were made all out of wood, but not felled wood because, again, they couldn't stand the idea of cutting down trees. So they sort of laboriously shaped Aww. and grew, grew trees together and sort of wove the branches into walls and into floors, you know, until he would they would create these massive structures that were um, essentially made out of we- weaving living trees together. Living, wow. Isn't that crazy? Like just it's such cool. a beautiful image to me. And yeah. he said the um, they would leave um, openings in the uh, in the ceiling for light to come in, and the light was then refracted um, with crystals, I guess, and and everything was like had it was sort of bathed in this rainbow light. Isn't that such a beautiful image? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, you know, I want to go there. <laughs> I want to go there and check it out too. But also, what a concept, right? Uh, of right. creating like a living structure. Especially um, back then. Yeah, right, right. I mean, they obviously had like topiary and stuff like that. But but yeah, the idea that, um, you know, he definitely had a sort of sensitivity to living things that, you know, definitely a lot of the Western world didn't have at that time. Um, but yeah, and so, like I said, a lot of the, you know, the conversations he had were more oriented around sort of, you know, their relationship, their spiritual relationships and, and so on. But, um, but yeah, he, he had many of these trips. Um, I don't, don't know exactly how many he went on, um, but he did say he was, you know, he conversed regularly 
uh, you know, with these spirits from, from our solar system, from our world. Sometimes he would take some from our world on trips with them or they tag along. Uh, it was almost like these little, like, um, you know, uh, uh, outings or whatever that, you know, spirits would go on. And, um, but it was very interesting and, and yeah. And so, you know, the, the result of all that was this, um, you know, um, this very large compendium of work that he did. And I think, I don't know if he wrote, um, worlds in space as meant to be a book, but I think towards the end of his life, he wanted to put it down or was told to put it down or however he saw it. Um, and, um, I think, I think at his death, someone asked him to recant. Um, and he said, you know, to, to admit that he had made it up, made it all up, um, so that he could get famous or something. And he said, no, no, all of this happened and exactly how I, how I put it down. And, um, yeah. And so that was, um, Swedenborg and, um, life on other planets. Wow. That's fascinating. Isn't that cool? Like, I mean, yeah. You know, I feel like it does t- touch on our, I mean, you know, it's impossible to, he had his own experience. He had an experience. It's clear that he had it. I don't think he's making any of it up. What he was experiencing, certainly open for debate. I mean, you know, he knows what he felt and what he saw as reality. You know, I think there is something about, you know, we talked about it with the afterlife, um, you know, b- being uh, um, pictured to us in a way that we understand Exactly. A lot of people say like that, you know, that's why that accounts for why there are similarities across cultures of near death experiences, but everybody views it through the lens of their own worldview and in a lot of ways in their own religion. So it's kind of like when you get the reports, that's why, oh, this is different from this one. Well, it's just the lens that put that's put on it. But really, um, you know, all of the framework is essentially very, very similar. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the, the, um, you know, the, the Tibetans in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, they, they continually come back to the notion that, you know, all these sort of gods and demons they see on the Bardo plane are all really masks or manifestations of themselves where they're, that need to be recognized as such, that they reveal something about life in the universe, but it's really just another layer from um, from the light, but there's, uh, mm-hmm. there's uh, even more like crazy stories in that that I didn't even touch on. There's a lot there, but, um, well, we, yeah. need, we need to do another one. Yeah. Yeah. We totally can, but he's a very yeah. interesting guy. And I mean, you know, like all the people that have sort of, that he's influenced over the years, um, you know, it's quite, quite large. Yeah. I love the living tree building. I know. I know that's with my the, favorite. With the prism lighting. I know. Isn't that such a sounds cool a, image? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds great. So. Cool. Um, well, just as with yours, mine would definitely need more than one episode to do it justice. Yes. I mean, I'm just learning about it. Um, you, I know, uh, you know a little bit more about him and you have some, some like pretty cool stuff that you should definitely jump in with, um, while I'm, while I'm doing this. Um, but I'm doing Nikola Tesla. Awesome. Yes. So just a little bit about him. Uh, He was born in the Austrian Empire on July 10th, 1856. And legend has it that it was during a lightning storm, which is very fitting. Yes. Oh, that's cool. Like powder or something. Remember that movie, Powder? (laughs) So, but he was a genius, obviously, with a wide range of interests in multiple areas. He was an inventor, um, electrical and mechanical engineer, both a futurist and a scientific pioneer, for sure. Um, he's also viewed as a champion of the underdog because he didn't come from money. He emigrated on his own. He remained true to his passions his whole life. Um, he died in relative poverty, but he was just very, very true to his ideals. And um, some people even think that Edison stole some of his ideas um, and took the money and didn't give him credit or, you know, or payment for it. Um, So in the 1870s, he studied both engineering and physics without getting a degree, and then he went on to work in the new electric power industry for Continental Edison. Um, And then in 1884, he emigrated to the United States, and he became a naturalized citizen. And at this point, he worked for Thomas Edison at Edison Machine Works before finally striking out on his own. He was just fascinated with electricity and um, just was an amazing inventor, full of ideas. 
Um, and all told, he obtained around 300 patents for his inventions worldwide. Um, not all of them are even accounted for at this point, and some are apparently hidden away in archives somewhere, and there's a possibility that if we, you know, come across them and find them, that would unlock amazing things for the world. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there are rumors of secret uh, Tesla inventions, um, including one that could provide free energy resource for the entire world. Oh, yeah, that was a big one. That, I mean, yeah, so there yeah. were conspiracy theories about, you know, like, you know, people trying to hold that back. And well, he definitely, I mean, he built that. Um, he built a, a wireless power antenna out in, um, yeah, yeah, what, Long I've got, Island. Oh, okay, right. sorry, go ahead. Um, I'm going to go, that's, <laughs> I want to go into that one. Okay, so here are just a few of his uh, many notable inventions. Um, the first is the Tesla coil. So, Everybody's probably seen one of these, maybe in a science museum, but it's basically uh, a tower of any height that uses coils to shoot mini lightning bolts into the air. And it's kind of easy to see why he's the archetype of the mad scientist with these flashes of lightning and kind of like a fearlessness when it comes to being open to new ideas. Um, but Tesla was obsessed with the idea of wireless power, and he really hoped that his Tesla coil would be able to materialize that. So, you know, aside from experimentation, the Tesla coil pretty much is mainly sort of a neat thing that you find in museums these days. Um, but um, there are so many other of his inventions that, you know, without him, we wouldn't have the technology that we do. Um, just one of these um, alternating current or AC power. Um, this is considered his crowning achievement. He made it easy to use AC power. Um, which basically allows energy to be sent over long distances. Um, there's the magnifying transmitter. Um, so the Tesla coils that you find in museums are tiny, but during his lifetime, Tesla actually constructed two gigantic coils to try and create his wireless power, power system that he wanted to bring to the world. And it shot lightning bolts that were 130 feet long. And Whoa. I found some amazing photos, and we'll post them on the Instagram of this, of him just kind of, like, hanging out, sitting there. I think he's, like, reading or something with his legs uh -huh. crossed. <laughs> right, right. And there's, like, enormous lightning bolts shooting across. Um, the Tesla turbine engine, he developed a turbine engine that used combustion instead of pistons to rotate the discs. The x-ray machine. So um, there was another scientist um, that was looking into x-rays, but Tesla took his findings and made it better, improved upon it. And he created one of the clearest x-rays that um, has ever been produced. He called it a shadow graph, but it was an x-ray of a foot with a shoe on it. Um, and huh. then, you know, there's a little bit of disagreement about whether or not he invented radio, but in a lot of reports... Um, he was actually preparing to send the first radio signal when his lab burned down. And some oh, people wow. um, thought it was potentially foul play from his competitors. Yes. Well, um, but then somebody there's else got lot, to it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then a radio-controlled boat was another one. Yeah, right. Um, but, but, you know, in addition to these, um, there were some even more out-there ideas that he never got the chance to make. One was, okay, he kind of made it. It was an earthquake machine. He built a, mechani a mechanical oscillator that was powered by steam, and it would vibrate up and down to generate electricity. So this is part of his whole like electricity quest. Um, and then one day, while he was tuning the machine, it caused the ground to shake so hard that the heavy equipment in the lab was flying around the room. And he actually had to break the machine with a hammer to get it to stop. And by this time, the police and ambulances arrived, and he told his assistants to tell to tell them that it must have been an earthquake. <laughs> right, right. But it wasn't. Yeah. Um, so, so another thing is a thought camera. So in huh. 1893, and this is where it kind of like verges on the paranormal and kind of gets into these areas of, you know, the mysterious and the unexplained. Um, in 1893, he was doing some experiments that led him to believe that it was possible to take a photograph of thoughts and here's his quote. He said, I became convinced that a definite image formed in thought must, by reflex action, produce a corresponding image on the retina, which might possibly be read by suitable apparatus. Wow. 
And then he added, if this can be done successfully, then the objects imagined by a person would be clearly reflected on the screen as they are formed. Now, we're not quite there, but I'm sure, um, you know, a lot of people have done the same thing I've done. And like, you know, there's the technology when you go to the airport, it reads your irises and you're able to be identified by that. And there's a lot of technology with, you know, being able to identify like, you know, based on where your eyes are looking on a page, you know, it can then like enable, you know, dictation and things like that. So, um, well, I mean, we definitely shoot each other, you know, uh, um, we definitely communicate through our eyes and granted Mm -hmm. you can say there's largely the, you know, our eyebrows and stuff are doing some work, but I mean, we've all had the experience of like shooting energy into other people's eyes, you know, like, you know, like uh, Plato would talk about that. Like when any time we look at something, we change it, right? And so, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's not that far fetched to imagine that there's some change in our eye that's so imperceptible, but we're still sensitive enough to pick up on it, right? Like if our own eyes right. can do it, then why why couldn't you build a machine that would somehow, you know, read it? So it's interesting. Yeah. So along the lines, I mean, we mentioned that um, wireless technology was one of his major amb- life ambitions. Um, and he wanted it to be free and available to everybody, which is, you know, mm-hmm. pretty cool. You know, he didn't want to cool. profit yeah. off of it. He wanted it to be just, you know, available for everyone, no matter where they are. So in 1901, he actually um, received about $150,000 from J.P. Morgan to build an enormous 180-foot mushroom-shaped tower on Long Island that was supposed to be able to send messages and images across the ocean using the earth to conduct the signals. And he believed that he would be able to light up New York City um, by sending electricity through the air. This was like one of his dreams. And so the project was eventually abandoned about five years later, but it did set the stage for our current wireless technology. Another another thing, uh, an artificial tidal wave. This was another one of his inventions that could capsize enemy ships in the event of an attack by sea. But the ultimate goal was apparently to prevent war. So he really wasn't big on demolishing the enemy, despite what like some of the press tried to like how they tried to frame some of his inventions. He was more about preventing war. Um, Another right, like thing. He came up with the death ray or whatever. Yes, right? I'm getting to that one. I'm getting to that. So, so like, you know, there was a so-called particle death beam, and this was like a name that the press came up with. But he envisioned it as more of a peacemaking beam, and it was basically an idea for a weapon that would ac- accelerate mercury particles at 48 times the speed of of sound, and shoot this high velocity beam through the air quote, of such tremendous energy, it will bring down a a fleet of 10,000 enemy airplanes at a distance of 250 miles. So the press, you know, leaped on it and, you know, you know, called it this death beam, but he saw it as more of a defensive weapon. And he described it as like an invisible Chinese wall, only a million times more impenetrable. Um, Yeah, he also had an idea for an electronic supersonic airship. So in a magazine interview in 1919, he was talking about his work on this aircraft concept that would travel eight miles above the Earth and enable people to travel from New York to London in three hours. And it would basically be pi- be powered by wireless electricity, so it wouldn't need to carry fuel. Wait, is that the the big ring thing, or is that, that something different? I, I think it's something different. It's, it's oh, okay. a, a supersonic airship. Oh, okay, okay. Okay. He had yeah. that giant ring that he you know he always dreamed of this like giant ring around the earth and you would basically it would basically stay still while the mm-hmm. earth spun inside of it. So people would basically get up onto the ring, the earth would spin and then they get off at their destination, like reverse traveling. Yeah. Oh my god, that's that's fascinating. Yeah. I didn't yeah, I didn't find that one. Um so he wasn't religious, um, although he respected religion, you know, particularly Christianity and Buddhism. Um, but re- regarding the soul, he was quoted at one point as saying, what we call soul or spirit is nothing more than the sum of the functionings of the body. When this functioning ceases, the soul or spirit ceases likewise. So that sounds like a pretty standard materialist viewpoint. That being said, his interest in his work intersected with the paranormal. And, you know, in some ways you have to kind of wonder, is this really 
what he truly believed deep down or as his career evolved. So another one of his, his inventions was the spirit radio, which was basically a crystal radio with sensitive Tesla coil antennas that could maybe possibly channel spirits and even communicate with extraterrestrials. And this is where it starts to get really interesting. <laughs> After he built this thing, he started listening to lightning from approaching storms that were like hundreds of miles away. But then he started to hear something else. And it was a very eerie phenomenon that sounded like disembodied voices speaking unintelligibly. So here's what he said about that. My first observations positively terrified me. As there was present in them something mysterious not to say supernatural, and I was alone in my laboratory at night. The sounds I am listening to at first sounded like human voices conversing back and forth in a language I cannot understand. I find it difficult to imagine that I am hearing real voices from people not of this planet. There must be a more simple explanation that has so far eluded me. However, <laughs> you know, you can kind of see like later on, you know, what he... Yeah, you know, the conclusions that he was kind of coming to. Um, but, you know, in the meantime, I just want to say that people have re replicated this and built this thing, the spirit oh, really? radio. Yeah. And you can actually hear audio online and you can really oh, see wow. why he was unnerved. It sounds so creepy. And you can hear oh, these voice like, yeah, you got to hear it. Um, there are voice like sounds and they almost sound like they're coming from like deep within the bowels of the earth. Or like deep in some cave and it's it's so freaky so uh the spirit radio is also able to generate sound out of light so again this person you know posted this video online and when they struck it with a laser or hit it with light from a light bulb or a candle it actually creates sound it's super wow. fascinating and then it can also um, create sounds out of colors due to something called the Van Eck freaking. And freaking is P-H. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, and I do not understand this, it's very complicated, but um, it's where radio emissions are correlated to a video display from like TV monitors, um, computer monitors, etc. And it was originally like a, f a form of eavesdropping or spying. Um, maybe we can do like that on its own in an episode. Yeah, totally. It's super interesting. Um, so basically, in 1901, Tesla wrote an article that is very interesting and you know kind of crosses into your Swedenborg ter Swedenborg territory, and it was called "Talking with the Planets." Okay. So here's a quote from this. He said, The desire to know something of our neighbors in the immense depths of space does not spring from idle curiosity, nor from thirst for knowledge, but a deeper cause. And it is a feeling firmly rooted in the heart of every human being capable of thinking at all. Whence then does it, whence then does it come from? Who knows? Who can assign limits to the subtlety of nature's influences? Perhaps if we could clearly perceive all the intricate mechanisms of the glorious spectacle that is continually unfolding before us and could also trace this desire to its distant origin, we might find it in the sorrowful vibrations of the earth, which began when it parted, parted from its celestial parent. Huh, that's really interesting. Yeah, right. So he then goes on to argue that he doesn't see why life might not exist in forms that we've never imagined on other planets. Right. Maybe they don't need oxygen or the same, same kind of nourishment. So we just automatically assume, oh, this atmosphere doesn't have any, right. you know, breathable air. Well, who's to say? So Bre what might breathable look... Breathable air for us, right? For us, right. So what might look like an uninhabitable planet might not be. So it's kind of similar to what like Carl Sagan has talked about when he discusses yeah. how life forms might have evolved in the gas giants. Carbon and, yeah. Right, all of that. Um, so then he goes on to suggest that the best way to communicate over long distance, distances in space might be the light ray. And then he says this, um, the feeling is constantly growing on me that I had been the first to hear the greeting of one planet to another. And this is going back to like what he heard with his um, spirit radio. 
At the present stage of progress, there would be no insurmountable obstacle in constructing a machine capable of conveying a message to Mars, nor would there be any great difficulty in recording signals transmitted to us by the inhabitants of that planet, if they be skilled electricians, communication once established, even in the simplest way, as by a mere interchange of numbers, the, prog the progress toward more intelligible communication would be rapid. So in other words, he's saying, hey, we can totally communicate with Mars or other planets, and let's start out with numbers, and when we do that, you know, really quickly, we'd be able to, like, figure out another way of communication that would be more detailed. Um, so, you know, it, he really um, seemed to believe that we could communicate with extraterrestrials, and he believed that he already had kind of heard something with these radio transmissions. Um, so... Here are some interesting facts about Tesla. Um, these are more like personal facts, not just to do with his career and his interests, but he was celibate. He never married. He apparently thought sex would get in the way of his work, which, you know, he was probs right. <laughs> um, some people think that he suffered from OCD because he was like a germaphobe and he was obsessed with the number three and he would do stuff like wash his hands three times in a row, um, circle a building three times before entering it. He had a photographic memory. He really, really hated pearls. Um, he even would refuse to speak to a woman who was wearing pearls. Um, it sounds kind of like one of those visual phobias where people just abhor like little teeny tiny holes. Oh, right. Symmetrically, one, right. Yes. stuff like that. I have a little bit of that. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So he lived and worked in hotels, including The New Yorker. And... Maybe with the same intensity that Tesla hated pearls, he actually loved pigeons. Um, so for 30 years, he reportedly used to spend time walking in Herald Square, Bryant Park, St. Patrick's Cathedral, feeding the pigeons. And this would often be after midnight, and apparently he would kind of like give a low whistle, and they'd gather around him. They knew him. They'd perch on his head, eat seeds out of his hands even. And for some reason, the germophobia didn't translate to these city pigeons. Um, so in various hotels he lived in, he would leave the windows open so the pigeons could come in and visit. And he would rescue sick ones, nurse them back to health in his hotel room. Um, he set up like breeding nests and would feed them bird seed. And he was actually asked to leave a number of hotels because of these pigeons. Um, but then uh, he actually found one pigeon that seemed like his soulmate. <laughs> and people have speculated, you know, that he had kind of like an interspecies romance going um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, but here's what he said about it. I've been feeding pigeons, thousands of them for years, but there was one, a beautiful bird, pure white with light gray tips on the wings. That one was different. It was a female. I had only to wish and call her and she would come flying to me. I loved that pigeon as a man loves a woman and she loved me. As long as I had her, there was a purpose in my life. So some reports say that wherever he went, the white pigeon would seem to find him. It was a frequent visitor in his life, and the bond seemed mutual. And then, you know, this he only had to think of her, and she would appear. So at this point, it's kind of starting to seem spiritual or supernatural, or like, like this is some kind of, you know, a symbol. Um, he confided in a friend that the pigeon was the joy of his life, and at one point she became ill, and he stayed beside her and nursed her back to health for days. So... Finally, one night, um, Tesla said that uh, the white pigeon visited him through an open window in his hotel, and he had the sense that this bird had come to, like, let him know that she was dying. And he looked at her, and he saw two powerful beams of light in the bird's eyes. And he said, yes, it was a real light, a powerful, dazzling, blinding light, a light more intense than I had ever produced by the most powerful lamps in my laboratory. And then the pigeon died, and he said, when she died, something went out of my life. Up until that time, I knew, a cert I knew with certainty that I would complete my work, no matter how ambitious my program. But when that something went out of my life, I knew my life's work was finished. So it was kind of like connected to him in some spiritual sense. And when the pigeon died, he knew, okay, this is the end. Um, now, just 
to play the skeptic. He'd been in an accident some years before. So critics have like, questioned, you know, this account with the pigeons and the lights. Um, I think I even found some account online where somebody else had a similar experience with a pigeon where their eyes became this like blinding light. Um, but even though Tesla didn't believe in the survival of consciousness, he told a friend that he kept feeding the pigeons because who knows, which seems to hint that maybe reincarnation was a possibility that he was now considering at this point in his life and he was getting older. So he died at the age of 86. He was alone and pretty much broke in a hotel room, but money was never that important to him. He lived for science and the gifts he gave the world and his boundless imagination live on um, and are still, you know, benefiting us and growing to this day. And I'll just close with this quote by Tesla. The scientific man does not aim at an immediate result. He does not expect that his advanced ideas will be readily taken up. His world, his work is like that of a planter for the future. His duty is to lay the foundation for those who are to come and point the way. He lives and labors and hopes. Wow, cool. Wow, there's a lot of a lot of great stuff in there. I mean, yeah, he's definitely, but, but you had some stuff that you wanted to mention too well, yeah, about I like mean, interdimensional. Okay. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, he definitely um, in his autobiography, I think, he even talks about how you know he would he would say he you know the way he would talk to the outer world and to the press and stuff was very conservative, right? He, mm-hmm. I think, he learned pretty quickly in his life that he couldn't just say what he thought to everybody, <laughs> you know? Right. Maybe and, until when he got older and then he was like, yeah, fuck it, so I'm, I'm going to talk that, about this pigeon. Yes, <laughs> yeah. right, right. Well, I'm just saying about what he thought about the soul and stuff. I don't know exactly mm-hmm. what he thought, but I do know that from from what he said that he would, um, you know, he had a conservative way of speaking to other people, you know, in the press, in the, in the outer world, whereas, you know, he definitely had um, a lot of like pretty crazy experiences in, in his life. I mean, obviously the pigeon's pretty crazy one, but he said when he was a um, when he was a child, I guess he was very sickly. He had a, a number of um, uh, very bad illnesses, and I think he actually had to go into um, uh, you know he, into quarantine at one point. I can't remember what he had, but I think he was like locked away into a cabin for like uh, six months as like a teenager mm. or like a twelve year old or something, and. Um, he almost died, and he actually said the only thing that kept him alive was um, was was reading uh, um, Tom Sawyer or Mark Twain books. And he said when he finally met Samuel Clemens, he actually told him he went up to him and said, "Your book saved my life," <laughs> and and that was like their their sort of uh-huh. famous meeting. But um, yeah, when he was when he was young, he would have these illnesses, and sometimes he would he said he would get um, caught in these other worlds in these sort of three dimensional worlds or, or dream worlds where he would have these, um, you know, either he would be asleep or sometimes it would happen when he was actually awake. Um, but he would enter into these, um, three dimensional worlds that were like populated by people and he would have an entire life there that, you know, he said one, he got trapped in for two years and, Oh, wow. That's isn't that crazy. And, and so he yeah. was so, terrified and he said he, he he almost couldn't find his way back out of this dream world and he said he was so terrified of um of getting caught in there that i think for a long time he didn't want to sleep he would like you know do everything do everything he could not to fall asleep not to slip into these worlds and he'd have these elaborate practices to keep himself awake and i think even as an adult perhaps connected to this he he was known for not really sleeping all that much. Um, I think he would sleep like 20 minutes, you know, like a day or something like that or something crazy or a couple hours a day or something. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, he definitely, you know, um, had, uh, this, you know, pretty, um, you know, broad view of the world and the universe. Right. And And that almost kind of like, you know, like what you're describing almost sounds like the multiverse theory, you know, like, was he in a possibly? Yeah. 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 I mean, who knows what he was, you know, is this, I mean, the idea of getting trapped in something for two years in your mind, it actually reminds me more of, of, um, you know, Black Elk's, his sort of vision when he had that, you know, he said it, it was, he was in this vision for a very long time. And I think he was only like a few weeks, he was in a coma as a child, but it was a sort of similar type of parallel, um, stuff happening to him. So, I mean, he definitely had these, 
you know, what we would call paranormal experiences, his view of, you know, the way energy worked and, and so on was pretty advanced and pretty, um, you know, um, you know, he didn't really stand on much ceremony when it came to viewing things scientifically. He wasn't afraid mm-hmm. to, to be weird or, but I think he definitely was a little bit more conservative about what, I mean, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people thought he was crazy at the time and, you know, um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, his ideas are still, you know, they're, they're still pretty relevant. And I think even that, um, he even at one point visualized, um, ver- verbalized really the idea of a wireless internet, you know, he said someday mm-hmm. we're going to be able to like listen to any music out of the air, you know, and, mm-hmm. and maybe it didn't happen exactly the way he sort of said it would, but it's, it's interesting, um, yeah, and then uh, the last thing was the that tower. I'm pretty sure he was able to um, power cars with that. I think that was part of the idea that Manhattan would have wirelessly powered cars, and I think he was actually able to accomplish it. But the tower was actually burned down. Another, I think, around the time when he was when his um his. Oh, well, that's lab crazy! Was. How many? Yeah, so many things are burned down. Yeah, you yeah, gotta so wonder. People ask me. I mean, there's there's a lot of like, you know, um, speculation about you know. Um, you know, you know, who did that and why, and whether that was like, you know, uh, um, you know, part of the oil industry or a part of like some mm-hmm. of his, you know, he was friends with the Rockefellers and stuff. And his answer was again, very measured and very conservative. He said, you know, nobody important did that. It was not a conspiracy, but you know, it's like, it's hard to imagine that he didn't see <laughs> something in that, you know, being, mm-hmm. you know, to lose all of his work, you know, within a course of a few years after being sort of funded by some of the richest people in Manhattan in the world. It was, you know, he had a very um, strange journey. So anyways, yeah, it's a very interesting person. For sure. Yeah. I think, again, we need another, we need another episode. Yeah, we'll do, we'll do some more. Maybe we'll, and I thought, I thought for sure there was like, maybe it was the, um, maybe it was the pigeon thing or maybe it was the, um, the uh, uh, radio, the spirit radio, which I definitely want to look up. But I thought there was like, some rumor or story about him having like a straight up alien buddy or something that someone that, that had visited him or something like that. Mm-hmm. I'll see if I can find it. Yeah. That could be cool to, to get into or just do like a straight up like Tesla conspiracy theories episode. Or something. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Cool. Well, that awesome. was a lot. Yeah. It was a lot, but fascinating. fascinating. Super fascinating. Yeah. 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 I love seeing like, you know, these, these guys like young and, Tesla and Swedenborg and, you know, I'm sure there'll be more that we, we, we bring to this podcast, but I love seeing, you know, that there's so, such individuals. I love seeing mm-hmm. the similarities between them, you know what I mean? About mm-hmm. how, you know, and even Einstein, you know, this, this way they would have visions of a world that really was outside of what we see as, as being real or possible. Right. And they would, yeah. they would sort of I cut think, through. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, I think we need to do an entire episode on scientists who, you know, were interested in the paranormal. Yeah, totally. Right. Um, like even Marie Curie. Um, yeah, there's, there have actually been quite a few. Cool. Yeah. I'd love to do that. All right. Well, I feel pretty good. How do you feel? I feel great. All right. So I guess, yeah, we got it. We got some more coming up here for February Maybe some more stuff about aliens. We'll see. Um, definitely some more stuff about aliens. Definitely some more stuff about aliens. So. We promised you alien yeah, sex. Yeah, yeah. We're going to deliver alien okay. sex. Cool. Um, but yeah, that'll be coming up soon. And then, yeah, more to come. So. All right. Okay. So I guess until next time. Okay. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye. Shadowland Podcast is produced by Seth Javlon and Christina Callery. Edited by Tim Kelly. Theme music by Tim Lincoln. Thanks, Tim. 